Everything in life is story. Story is how we share ideas, politics, vision, fantasies, experiences, even our hopes and dreams. The Gibson Gazette is a podcast show devoted to story. Those we consume, those we tell ourselves, and those told to us. Welcome, I am L. Michael Gibson, one of the co-hosts of the Gibson Gazette podcast. And I am joined today by Ms. Tracy Salisbury. Um, and Tracy, you can let me know if I'm spelling your last name incorrectly. And my good girl, Alt, <laughs> Adrian, Adrian Trailer, um, LT. And uh, we are um, absent our usual co-host, AMC, who's been with Gibson Gazette from Jump. She is taking a temporary leave of absence to work on some big projects. Be looking out there for those. Um, she's been working over the summer on some very big projects with her name attached. We're so proud of her. But she will return um, either later this season or in time for season three. But in the meantime, Tracy has agreed to join us, and we're so delighted. Tracy, could you introduce yourself yes, to are. our audience? And, um, and if you have a three-letter acronym because we do a lot of <laughs> lmg amc alt here alt feel free free oh free feel free to give us your uh three-letter acronym for today's conversation all right well that's great i'm 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 pleased to be joining the gibson gazette podcast um just a short little introduction of myself i am actually dr tracy salisbury i'm an associate professor of ethnic studies. My uh, key expertise is black studies. I am a film and television uh, expert and fanatic. I principally look at horror films, westerns, um, probably a good portion of uh, foreign films. Uh, a lot of um, television, as long as it's uh, British television, um, old detectives, um, I just really, really do love film. Uh, it's, it's, I'm currently working on a uh, manuscript related to film, so I'm hoping that will be finished by the end of the summer. Um, but uh, for me, film is life. TV is life. Uh, it's reflections of who we are as a society. And uh, I love the little fleeting moments where I get to see myself as an individual, which is why I love to study uh, black film as well, particularly black exploitation uh, films and, and black exploitation horror. But that's a little bit about me. Um, I did spend a little time at NYU Film School in my youth and made some short films. And I'm a screenwriter principally, and I'm actually hoping to get back in the film now that I've uh, got the whole tenure thing under my arm and can run down the street with it and do what I want to do now. <laughs> well, congratulations on getting tenure. Thank you. And I would say my short acronym, I'm old school, so I'm a, I'm TMS. I would say I'm like THX, the old sound system. <laughs> TMS. I, I don't know. I feel like we need to res put some respect on your name and call you Doc Tracy or Doc that T. Works. <laughs> How you feel about that, Adrian? I'm good with that. I, hey, I'm good with that. I, I had yeah. already congratulated her earlier on on uh, getting tenure, um, especially, you know, since I work in in academia as well. I know uh, how arduous a process that can be, um, particularly for uh, Black women academics. So I give her all the praise. And yes, I'm all about Dr. Tracy. That's good for me. 
Yes, it's an honor and privilege to have such esteemed guests uh, as our co-host for the next few episodes. And now that we know that you're also a black exploitation person, we definitely need to bring you back for that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And I am, this season is devoted to nostalgia, Gen X nostalgia, um, which is why we're such an emphasis on uh, cultural artifacts from the 70s through the 90s. And from told from a Gen X perspective. Uh, however, when we we definitely for season three needs to have that British show because I am obsessed with all things British detective shows. That's oh, my obsessed. go-to. I am obsessed. Look at I us all bend. being in the same pool together because I'm right there <laughs> with you. That is something the three of us definitely share. I probably binge one of this four to eight episode series at least once a week from either Acorn or BritBox or, you know, just a PBS Masterpiece. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mess. Anyway, <laughs> that is not today's conversation. Yes. Too late watching Grace last night. I was like, go to bed. <laughs> uh, season three, Grace, I just finished last week. There we have it. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, we, we we can't get we can't get into that's a rabbit hole. I could fill ourselves here full. <laughs> I could fill it for the vortex. Today's conversation is about King and the Blacks. And I ain't talking about MLK. We're talking about the white boy king, Stephen King, <laughs> and his relationship with black folks and black horror and black folks loving who love horror. And um, all three of us today are King people, have read King, and may be in love with them, may not be in love with them anymore, depending on who we are. Um, and But it's, you know, you can't uh, talk about horror in America and not talk about the impact um, and indelible mark that Stephen King has left on the culture, on the populace. On, on film, on expectations of story, of horror story, um, all of that. So we're going to get into the meat of that. But before we jump into the Stephen King of it all, are there current stories that are capturing your attention that you wanted to make sure our, our audience was hip to? What you checking out these days? Um, you know, I, I can I relate what I'm currently watching connected to a film that hit me really hard, which was uh, Women Talking. And one that's oh, I've got yes. um, she said, um, because I'm hoping Donald Trump goes down in flames on this civil trial, rape trial, because I think he's a rapist. And um, but I, I'm very struck by how that ties together about believing women, um, about how women choose to handle themselves once they've been assaulted or harassed. And, you know, and what is truly considered justice. And so that is, is that real life story connected to women talking, which I think is, is, is a hard watch, extremely powerful, extremely well written and directed, and is a high recommendation for me to watch. But wow, to watch it kind of, uh, which is based on a true story, um, watching it play out uh, with someone who was actually president of the United States just kind of blows me away. I loved and adored women talking. I mm-hmm. cried like a baby. I went and did the deep dive into the Bolivia story yes. after watching it. Um, yeah, I just feel like everybody should see it. I, I mean, 
even if it's if you're not as interested in the sexual assault conversation, I think it's just a great conversation about gender and gender dynamics and sexism in America, misogynoir and misogyny in America. Misogyny in America, not smart. Ain't no, white, ain't no black women in this movie, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> just, just the white girls. Just the white girls and one, and one white guy. But, um, you know, uh, though with Ben Whishaw, you could say it's just another white girl. But anyway. <laughs> one more thing. Everybody yeah. keeps whining Ooh. about female directors. People need to give Sarah Polly her props. Absolutely. She's making great films. You know, there ain't no black women in those films, but, but you know, but she's making great movies. So when you whine about directors, you know, not women directors, we don't always pay attention to the ones who are consistently working, and she is one of them. I was glad that it got the um, the win. I think it got the win for best screenplay. Yeah. In the Oscars yeah. this year. I, I felt like that was, I mean, some recognition that this masterpiece existed because um, it really did fall through the cracks of even the Oscar discussion. I, you know, I think I saw maybe the week leading up to the Oscars and was like, yo, why? <laughs> why is it this? <laughs> this feels like Oscar bait all day. This feels like, you know, prestige Oscar bait fever. Um, and kind of like she said, which I still haven't seen, she said. Um, yeah, but I, I was like, mm, I'm so, it's interesting which films are getting the love this year and which ones aren't. Uh, what about you, Alt? What stories is capturing your imagination these days? Well, um, <clears throat> to be honest, the thing that has been on my mind the most uh, in the last um, day or so has been uh, the death of Carolyn Dunham. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> just processing, seeing people in my social media feed trying to process this woman getting to live to a ripe old age when her lies ripped apart the souls of so many people, especially Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, uh, and his family and <clears throat> the black community and even people outside the black community who this was because of Mamie Till's very incredibly brave uh, actions and forcing the world to see what had been done to her son the reckoning that happened for so many people and all the attempts over the years to bring attention to the fact that this woman was still living and going about her business, paying no kind of consequence for what she had done. And when the revelation came that she was working on a memoir, and had described herself as another victim alongside Emmett Till. I don't know what I believe about what happens to us after we leave this plane. 
but I'm just going to say that whatever it is, I hope that she experiences a tenth of what that poor child endured and that it goes on forever and ever and ever. And that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I can hear with high emotion over there as well. Um, and for those who may not be as familiar with the Emmett Till story, uh, the woman had accused Till of having made a pass at her, uh, Till at the time being a 14-year-old boy, and she being a grown-ass white woman <laughs> at the time. And um, her lies about him, even if he had made a pass, <laughs> he's a boy, um, and... Uh, but her lies about him got him killed by members of her family. And um, and not just killed, tortured. Yes. Brutally murdered. Tortured. Yes. And um, in the death of Emmett Till and Mamie Till, who I knew as a child, Mamie Till, Mobus used to go to my church as a kid. Wow. Um, uh, her decision to allow the world to see what they had done to her son by having an open casket um, and the media and Jet Magazine capturing what that, what the remains of her son looked like. Um, the horror of it is uh, often given credit for helping spark the second civil rights movement. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit lighter note. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, with uh, is, and there are so many great stories right now. I mean, Harry Belafonte is getting his flowers. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are mm -hmm. not giving him his flowers because of a statement he made allegedly to Eartha Kitt and from her memoir about him not being interested in black women mm -hmm. after um, his first wife. Uh, me personally, I will not reduce the legacy of a person to a statement made when he may or may not have made in his 20s or 30s. <laughs> Um, preach, preach, you know, preach. Uh, for me personally, uh, the, what he contributed to the civil rights movement and the black folks and, and multiple movements, quite frankly, um, over his 96 years, um, for me, is a, a body of a life and not um, some ill-conceived statements that at some point that might have been rooted in misogyny noir. Um, and that's not to excuse what he said. If he said it, it was terrible if he said it. Uh, but the man got to be 96 and from all accounts for everybody else who engaged with the man, uh, he was an incredible human being who did a lot of great things for black people and indigenous movements and young, young activists to the day he was, he died. So, um, but, uh, for me, I'm going to go in a different direction with beef and the diplomat and night agent. There are like these very middle of the road, but incredibly fun <laughs> stories that are, beef is probably actually high. Beef, we want to say middle of the road. Beef, we're going to almost say is prestige and how good it is. This is so gritty um, that, you know, these are all three are Netflix shows. They all came out in the last month and all are highly bingeable. Uh, the Diplomat and Night Agent are a little bit more formulaic, but still f a fun ride. And 
great acting in um, in them and definitely worth your time. If you're looking for an eight-hour Saturday sitting with some popcorn and ordering some pizza, any of these three are <laughs> worth your time. I actually found Beef to be a little too intense for the first few episodes for me to do a binge. I think it took me to the third episode before I was able to sit down and watch the next five episodes straight through. Um, it was just so edgy, so anxiety um, building uh, that it took a minute for me to be able to just uh, relax into the story and these characters. Um, and and they all are tapping into different aspects of what's going on in the world. I think Beef has been such a phenomenon because everybody's dealing with some suppressed anger since the uh, pandemic that is being realized in these really crazy outbursts on airplanes, in lines, at grocery stores. <laughs> like, it's happening all over. And I think there's something in the zeitgeist that beef taps into that we have a lot of unaddressed mental health stuff happening in the world since the pandemic. We've said it before on the show and beef is really allowing people the catharsis of seeing their rage get to live out loud in, um, in some fresh ways with Asian characters and rooted in Asian culture and a very specific types of Asian culture too, not like Asian generic. <laughs> so I definitely recommend all three, The Diplomat, Night Agent, and most of all, Beef, for fun rides on your Netflix these days. Have you all checked out any of these three that's been happening? I I loved Beef. I feel bad for them that um, David Cho popped up to be a problem, because I think he's going to be an ongoing problem if they choose to continue the series. Um, mm. I'm not sure how he's going to be able to continue uh because and i haven't i haven't watched it yet because of that i wanted to watch it very much because i'm a big fan of stephen young in particular um and then that <coughs> i hadn't had a chance to watch it yet and then that story broke and i'm not saying i won't watch it because i've heard nothing but raves about it but i admit i'm hesitant um now because of that well cho is very good in this and it but it's hard and and then knowing that what he's now saying is a fable. I'm not quite sure I believe that. Mm -hmm. um, it was a black woman was the victim. It, wow, opens different doors. Yeah. Um, uh, but I love that Beef has just destroyed a tremendous amount of Asian stereotypes and will open different doors, I hope, um, for those uh, creatives. But I'm excited about The Diplomat because I love the lead actress and how she's managed to build a career because I thought Felicity uh, <laughs> had almost ended her career and I always thought she was very talented and to watch her to be able to grow and play very different things and uh, and I will check out the night agent it all depends on how I feel about um, what's the new prime show with the little fine lady, lady that's on it that uh, Indian uh, the Citadel the Citadel <laughs> is getting horrible reviews is it because I at first I was confused when I started seeing commercials for that because I thought it was the night agent and I, I thought it was commercials for that. And then I realized it was something totally different with Richard Madden. Um, but yeah, then I started seeing the reviews and I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah you, you can I be will. forgiven for believing it's the night agent because the, the visuals, the aesthetics of them are, are similar. <laughs> but but no, uh, The oh, Citadel is the sad. second most expensive TV show ever made. 
and the reviews are terrible. So, so Amazon's spending a lot of money on making series that are not good. Yeah, there yeah. seems to be a, a trend that they, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I'm fearful of because I actually like some of their fare, but the fare that gets um, a lot of press isn't the shows that I, <laughs> the shows oh. that I, you know, like Power, the Power right now is killing it. And I'm not seeing people talk about it. It's not a water cooler show. They're barely and promoting it. And and it's and you know, is, and speaking of is women, that the sh- is that the one with um Tony Collette? Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Yeah, Tony <laughs> Collette. And, yeah, the and the the power is a show about um teenage girls initially um develop a new organ in their bodies which allow them to channel electricity through their body and mm. out of their body as bursts. And oh. there's lots of different ways in which they can transfer electricity as they develop their powers. And they can also give it to other women um, who are older yeah. women. And Ooh. so this immediately changes the gender paradigm of who has the most power. And they're, and the show is global. So you have characters in Africa, you have characters in Russia, you have characters in um, America, you have characters in the UK and, and, and you see a Middle Eastern story for a whole episode of women in Saudi Arabia who, you know, are tearing off the shackles of oppression because they can fry. <laughs> they can fry a man. Yes. And um, it's an incredible story. It's based on a novel. It's, um, I love it. I am not seeing many people talk about it and I can't help but wonder if it's because of the topic making people uncomfortable this idea of women with power Mm -hmm. um but but that is where we are I do want us to make sure because we brought up David Cho and I'm not sure that all of our our audience is familiar with what the accusation is and I, I will clarify by saying David Cho is not a lead in beef he is a minor character he is very good in it but he is a supporting character. He's not consequential um, necessarily um, to the overall experience. You know, I, so. I disagree with you a little bit on that because he pushes the Steven Yeun character to do some stuff he probably wouldn't have done. Yeah, and, I mean, plot wise, he's consequential. Yeah, plot yeah. wise, yes. No, I don't. I don't. But you know, if people are thinking that he's like in every episode and a major figure in every episode and they don't want to see that uh, he's not that um but he is he is critical to the plot um could you unpack a little bit what the accusation is against cho and then we can move on to stephen king well he a lot of people may not know he's a muralist and he made a lot of money making murals for a social media company and got stock instead of necessarily payment and then sold the stock so he's independently wealthy um, but he told a fantasy story. Well, number one, he's on Ugly Delicious, if you watch that cooking reality show or food reality show. And he's made problematic, misogynistic comments on that show. Uh, but on another podcast, he t- kind of told a story where he he tried to make it sound like he committed a rape. And it clearly sounded like rape. The co-host on the podcast was a, a woman who got upset with him and said, this sounds like rape. Um, he didn't back off the charge at the time, uh, but it caused some controversy a few years back. 
and then it it re it revisited itself when beef became a big deal, making him and I agree with L. Michael making him a bigger deal than he actually is to the show. Um, uh, and so uh, it put pressure on the creators, and they basically said it was a fabrication. But he says it with so much detail and such vividness, it's very hard to believe it's a fabrication. Or and either way, even if it's the truth or fabrication. Why would you even do that? Why would you even say that out in the air? Why is that something you're sharing? There's a illness there either way. And Cho hasn't said much other than an apology. Um, and that took a while to get that. So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm with El Michael. I think he can be canned off the future seasons of the show. And uh, and they could explain him away. They could probably even recast the role. Um, I, I think he's there to be the epitome of what someone who is evil and that's what his example was um and but he could be replaced but it's shameful because he's really hurting a very brilliant show he he became the sideshow to something right um, yeah and i and some of the let me just say that some of the <clears throat> some of the the critique has been that it took so long for the creatives behind the show and the stars mm-hmm. of the show to make any public comment when um, all of this resurfaced. Um, And then a lot of people are bothered by the fact that they're taking his statement at face value that this was a fabrication, that this was something that he made up, you know, basically like a 4chan troll, you know, for the the lulls uh, on this podcast. Um, And, you know, not really engaging with the substance of you know how many how many levels of wrong this is even if it is a fabrication um and because of his personal relationship with the creator of of beef and Stephen Yoon who of course is also a, a producer um there's you know there's kind of multi levels to it that's beyond how significant his role actually is in the show because he's not an actor um and but the but the um, creator of the, of the show talked about basically how he cast him because I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially that he embodied an energy um, that was important for the character. And given <laughs> how the character has been described um, and, you know, kind of the, the role that he plays in the narrative, th- there seems to even be more you know, crossing of lines between reality and, you know, and fantasy there. He's, he's basically the guy that he's playing in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. so I think that, that kind of adds an extra layer to the problematic nature of it. So, you know, I'm happy. Um, I, like I said, I've heard nothing but raves and I very much want, I very much want to watch it and probably will, you know, watch it. But, um, you know, I just want I, I was given pause um, because of not only the story, but the, the the extended silence before they were kind of pushed into making a statement about it. I, I found that 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 bothered me. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it, it's I mean, I think to trace Dr. Tracy's point, uh, even if he didn't do it, playing around with rape culture means, you know, something right (laughs) like even if you didn't commit the act why are you playing like that sir that's not funny it's not cute it's you know it's whatever i mean he he is 
great in that role, and it might be because he is that person. So, you know that that you know that might be you know facts are stranger to fiction. Um, moving us along, though, and um, and for those who uh, didn't know who um, Doc Tracy was referencing, Carrie Russell is the star of The Diplomat, and Thank you. Uh, Carrie Russell also had a um, pretty brilliant uh, opportunity after Felicity with the Americans, which has yes. gone on to become like a cult classic. So, um, but uh, let's move on to the Stephen King of it all. Stephen Edwin yes. King is a 75 year old. Can't believe the man. He looks exactly the same as he did when I first saw him on a book cover. <laughs> 75 year old <laughs> Maine based American author of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science fiction, and fantasy. The only thing the man has not written is a rom-com. Um, he is described as the king of horror pun on words. Um, a play on his surname and a reference to his high standing in pop culture. As of 2022, King has sold more than 400 million copies. And you know what, folks? That don't even put him in the top 10 of the best-selling authors of all time, which I was kind of shocked at when I went to look it up. Um, But still, 400 million copies. Um, Many have been adapted into film, television series, miniseries, comic books, operas, plays. Um, musicals <laughs> like there's uh, no end to the adaption of King's works. Uh, he has produced 65 novels, 11 short story and novella collections, um, five nonfiction works, and seven of those works were under the pen name Richard Bachman. Uh, King first quit his day job as a teacher and produced his first novel, Carrie published in 1974 the bidding war for that um for the movie rights of carrie helped to make him financially independent very early on um and allow him to write almost a book if not more than a book a year from that point on his latest work some what almost 50 years later (laughs) holly uh, will be published on September of this year. Holly's part of the Mr. Mercedes franchise that has been um, successful in more recent years. His longest and best-selling book is The Stand, at a whopping 1,152 pages. Though it comes, though it comes close at over a thousand pages itself. Um, there have been some 60 film and TV adaptations of his work. 34 of those at the most recent count were films. In terms of awards, there's no end to the awards that he's won. Bram Stoker's, British Fantasy, National Book Foundation, uh, World Fantasy Award, Lifetime Achievement, Mystery Writers of America Awards. He has the National Medal of Arts. He has the U.S. National Endowment for the, I mean, Biden, U.S. National Endowment for the Arts and for his contributions to literature. Stephen King is more than just an author, he is a brand. (laughs) So much so that his children had to come up with other names so they would not be branded as Stephen King's children when they had their own successes, nod to Joe Hill and his Lock and Key collections. Um, The Stephen King of it all. So if you have 
what made you first fall in and then maybe out of love with Stephen King? Well, I, I guess I'll jump first? in. Go ahead, Dr. Jump. Tracy. I'll jump in. Um, I will never fall out of love with Stephen King. Uh, he's your first, my first. Um, he, he got in that door and he gets me. That's the way I look at it. He gets me. He scared me from the beginning, and, and he has always managed to maintain it. I've been uh, disappointed on times and angry sometimes with some of the books, and, and I don't always blame him for the films unless he had his direct hands in the making of it. Uh, but the books, yes, sometimes it's been a challenge, and uh, but most of the time it's been a home run for me, and uh, He's someone I love to revisit, particularly the short stories. Um, yeah, he he just is the guy for me, and I I just think he sticks with me. And I know he's taken years of criticism and people saying he's not a serious author and he doesn't know the craft. And I think that's ridiculous. And it's good he's lived the seventy five to see a lot of people have to eat those words and respect his prose. Um, I know he tends to overwrite, but as a kid who was a voracious reader, I loved that. So, no, there's no uh, out of love for me. I will always love Stephen King. All right. And do you remember what your first Stephen King book was? My first book was because I was getting around on my parents. If I got big books, they tended to look at them. If I got paper books, they kind of didn't bother. <laughs> and so uh, it was the collection of his first collection of, of short stories. And so when I got a hold of that, um, uh, forgotten in the, in the title is escaping me, um, scared the hell night out shift? of me. In, in, in night shift. Night shift. 1978. Yeah. 1978. And that has some of the scariest stories he ever wrote. And it scared the hell out of me as a little kid. And my folks were like, what is going on? And I, you know, and I couldn't fess up what I was reading. And after that, that just set it off. Anything I hadn't got my hands on by him at that point, I was just determined to get it. And even if I had to save up my own money and buy it on the sly, I was getting Stephen King. But Night Shift was what did it and then uh seeing um Salem Slot the TV series the next year was I was through I was hooked Awesome what you got for me all Well uh <laughs> I never was in love with Stephen King so I never could fall out of love with him um but I was uh, a very, um, I guess dedicated would be the word for a, for a long time. I tried to read everything of his that I could get my hands on. Um, I have always liked his work. Some of it I've loved. Um, a lot of it has disappointed me. Um, I do think, uh, as Tracy said, I do think he tends to overwrite. Um, I admit that, you know, some of his longer novels I've, you know, have been, have become a slog to me. Um, so when everybody in my school was reading it and I, you know, I tried to read it and the beginning, uh, of it was riveting. Um, 
but as it continued to go on, I, I started to lose interest in it. Um, and that has tended to happen with some of his longer novels, um, The Stand, um, Tommy Knockers, uh, the book he wrote with Peter Straub, um, the Talisman. Talisman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those were, <clears throat> uh, you know, those were a little bit more, you know, kind of heavy lifting for me. But I happen to think I am a huge fan of the short story as a form. And I grew up, that was my entree into horror to begin Mm -hmm. with, was reading short stories, um, whether we're talking Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Charles Mm -hmm. Beaumont, um, even earlier um, short stories, M.R. James, um, (coughs) excuse me, uh, and, uh, you know, Algernon Blackwood, um, you know, some of those uh, classic, uh, (coughs) excuse me, um, classic uh, weird writers, um, even Lovecraft, yeah, even even Lovecraft um, <laughs> for a while there. And uh, so I think that he, I think he excels in the short form. And so the book that uh, <clears throat> really opened things up for me as far as he was concerned was just like you, Tracy, it was Night Shift. And um, I think that does, I, I love his, I love his collections just in general. I mean, you know, different seasons and, um, full dark, no stars, which is novellas, but they're so good. Good. Um, and, um, but the stories in night shift were just captivating. And those are some of his, his strongest, um, and in some ways, most cinematic short stories. Um, <coughs> sorry. And, um, you know, it has the, which, you know, many of these have been, many of those stories have been adapted into film. Uh, the films often differ quite a bit from the stories. So I always encourage people to go back to Night Shift and read those original stories. Read the original um, Graveyard Shift. Read the original uh, Trucks, which became the... Maximum Overdrive. Ludicrous Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. Um, read the original Lawnmower Man. Read the original Children of the Corn. All of those were part of, of Night Shift. And um, <clears throat> so that um, that was kind of as close to falling in love uh, with him as I was going to do. That was the book that did it. And I have not fallen out of love with him, like I said, because I never was in love. But I still read. I haven't read every book. Um, I don't read. I don't, you know, rush to pick everything up, um, you know, the way I did when I was younger. I do want to read, I know he had a book out uh, in the, towards the end of last year called Fairy Tale that I very much want to read. The The um, premise of that sounds really good to me. So I'm definitely going to get, definitely going to get that. Um, and so I kind of, re- you know, I kind of read things here and there. Like I said, not everything that he, not all of his output, but, um, you know, he's still, he's still definitely on a, on the TBR uh, stack for me. I'm going to pause. I do. All right. All right. We're resuming. Um, for me, for me um, I have very different experiences with King than the both of you. I, I think, because my childhood was so wrapped up in King novels that, I, that it's all kind of blended together. 
I think the standout experience for me with Sting King's books was it because I read it twice. It was I read it when I was like the year it came out, I think it was 10. And it was the biggest book I'd ever read at that point. It would eventually be eclipsed by Gone with the Wind. Um another problematic book. <laughs> but but um but I it was I was so proud of the fact I had read a book that was a thousand pages or over a thousand pages. But I, I read it and was so in love with Derry, so in love with the character, so in love with the setting that I didn't want to leave it. As terrifying and as horrific as it was, I didn't want to leave those people when I was done with it. And so I just started it all over again. Um, it was the first time I'd ever done that with a book at 10 and 11 years old. Um, but my first book that I believe was uh, was Firestarter, and from that moment on, everything I could get my hands on by Stephen King. I mean, like, yeah. obsessed. Cujo, Christine, like, back to back to back, King, King, King. And because we weren't, um, we were a, a, a humble family without resources, as we would say today. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it was me at the library, just, like, checking out any Stephen King book that I can get my hands on. Um, and, uh, and, and then then like whatever was available at used at the thrift store. Um, but King wasn't often at the thrift store. People kept their King books. Um, mm-hmm. and then it was the one book pet cemetery for me mm-hmm. is the only time me and my favorite aunt laid in bed and read a book together. We would, Aww. she was, she was, uh, staying with us briefly and, she, I don't know how, why this book in particular, but we both decided we want to read it together. And she, whenever she get off work and I would be done with my homework, we would lay up and, and be terrified through the pet cemetery of it all <laughs> together. And it was just, I loved, loved with a deep passion, Stephen King's work. Um, I don't, I've since last year, I went through a big buy um, cause I realized I wanted to own all of those books that I had to check out of the library and get at the thrift store and stuff. And I wanted them in hardcover. So I now have the initial run of Stephen King books that I loved, um, on hardcover. Cause for me, it's a definite fell in love, fell out of love. <laughs> so yeah. I was deeply in love and read everything I could get my hands on until 1999. And I, I remember the book. It was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Mm. And I remember I couldn't finish it. It was the first time I couldn't finish a Stephen King novel. And I was like, this isn't... And it wasn't, you know, like y'all have complained about him overwriting or whatever. This was actually one of his thinner books, leaner yes, books. And it just wasn't... I was like, I don't care about this character <laughs> and what happens to them. <laughs> like, and that was the first yeah. time that had happened to me with a Stephen King work. And I didn't read The Heart of Atlantis, which came out, I think, either right before it or right after it, because that was him trying to prove to literary people that he could write well. And I was just like, I anybody who read Dolores Claiborne, who doesn't believe that Stephen King can write literary prose is stupid. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. like, I mean, it's not even, I read Dolores Claiborne in, I, I was at a date's house, and he had to go to work, and I, he's like lived in the suburbs, and I couldn't get home. 
and he was like, oh, just read a book or something. I'll be back. And it's like before the internet and stuff, y'all, you know, and it was no Ubers. Yeah. <laughs> and, <I was> like, <laughs> and so he had a copy of the Lawrence Claiborne. I literally read the Lawrence Claiborne the whole time he, from the time he left to the time he got back from work, I was done in like eight hours. I was just completely absorbed into that world and these people. And so, and then I tried it again with the Buick book and I was, and it felt too much like Christine. And I was just like, oh, he's, he don't have it no more. <laughs> like, it was like, he ain't, he ain't got it. I mean, and it was kind of like, well, you know, at that point it, he had written over 40 books. And so I was like, you know, it, you know, he had a good run. You know, I had gotten to that same point around Anne Rice too. So I was like, oh, this is just what, ha-. you know, you have a peak. We love your peak. And you know, you're still doing stuff, but it's kind of a rehash of your greatest hits. And so for a while, I didn't think Stephen King, you know, was just good anymore. Um, but I've since uh, been interested in the Mr. Mercedes books because of the TV adaptation it was so good for the Mr. Mercedes series. Um, it was such a great series. I was like, I might have to go back and read the book. And then I loved Haven, which was based on a Colorado kid. And um, that was another like five series, five season series. Um, and it was something else. And I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe he got it again. So I did buy Fairy Tale on audiobook with the intention of reading it again. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I have, you know, for somebody who didn't buy Stephen King for a long time, I've bought maybe four books recently, the Joyland, the Institute, Dr. Sleep, and Mr. Mercedes, and Fairy Tale to see, because all of those have been really well received and um, have had adaptations or something. And so I was like, okay, well, let me see what's what's what. Um, But I definitely had a period in which I was in love, deeply in love with Stephen King and then not so much. Because <laughs> so. I thought we were picking one of one, but I, I, look, I will say this, and where I say you have to give him grace, and it's not about love. Um, he was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Um, uh, and when he became sober, the writing became slightly different. Um, yes. And he, I think, got some clarity and wanted to explore some other things, but because he had been so dark, uh, some of the things he did, like Tom Gordon and Lisey's story, um, seemed off um, and not quite as good to me, uh, enjoyable. But also, too, nearly dying in that hit-and-run car yes. accident changed him as well. Um, and I think he really started to change his kind of view of the world and weather darkness. And, you know, my love of Stephen King was the fact that he could really master the human condition of fear, you know, when he's, when he, cause I love reading his introductions to his short stories. And when he said he couldn't sleep with his feet exposed, that was me. And I was just like, yes. And then uh, when he tells the story about the library police, that his son had an overdue mm-hmm. library book. And he said he was trying to convince him to return. And he was like, well, why? It's just a few dollars. And he was like, no, the library police will get you. And I like, I was a believer in that. I think, my thing is, how did you come to King 
And I could say I probably read in a row the scariest things he was doing at the beginning. And I know I felt let down when I read other things. So it, I think mm-hmm. it all depends because it's like, I think I went after Night Chip, I think the first novel I ever read was The Shining. And then I, you know, it was from The Shining to The Stand to It. And then I discovered that he was Bachman in a grocery store. Someone had put four stories together and it was a black cover and it said, um, Stephen King is Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading those and those were darker than the stuff he was writing as his own name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, when I finally read Carrie and Firestarter, I was kind of like, meh, you know, because that didn't seem as scary to me. Um, right. You know, but I think if we look at like the dead zone, that's where I think he can, it's another voice, the dark stuff like the stand and it. I think the dead zone is where he focuses on human monsters. It's where he's really got another interest that people didn't separate. Like you know, I I didn't I didn't get Cujo. Cujo didn't do anything for me. Um, other than you know the fact that Stephen King won't hesitate to kill a child always got me because I was like, oh poor baby, you know. It, it was, <laughs> I was like, Lord have mercy, because you knew he just wasn't going to. That was that was not going to save you being a kid. So I will say he toughened me up for that. Um, I absolutely love Pet Cemetery, and yeah. I do. I think Dolores Claiborne is practically perfect. But see, a lot of people don't like Thinner, and I love Thinner. Thinner is uh, incredible. It's <laughs> like, who, who, who doesn't like Thinner? What's wrong with yeah, the people? Yeah, who don't I like told certain white male academics, "White man from town," because of that. I said, "No, no, white man from town. We're not going to do that." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it's um, and I love it. But the I was problem, just gonna say the movie's not good, but the but the book is a is an entirely different, an yeah, entirely well, different entity. Since they've decided they're gonna remake remake everything, I would like them to try again with thinner and actually cast real gypsies, and uh and you know do a good job with it. But I also think thinner is just hard to adapt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean but, the horror. I mean I didn't mind the movie so much. Uh, to me, the horror of thinner is just is in the page turning and just like experiencing viscerally this man wasting away page by page and you're like it's it's a break breakneck speed as as you're like flipping through like is he gonna is he gonna be able to figure this out is he gonna figure out Mm -hmm. a solution like it's uh, yeah anybody who don't like thinner y'all crazy and i don't ever want to read any literary reviews and, and y'all you know you might get me but i i hated i hated the tommy knockers i just i hated the it, tommy knockers he now says that that was that's one of his worst books and i, I i'm i'm okay with that Stephen. yeah because... i'm okay with that and i think l michael's onto something i think it's sometimes producing two or three books in a year and I think that was, you know, one of those casualties. And then after seeing Bag of Bones, reading Bag of Bones, and how much he writes about himself when he does these focusing on authors, I have mm-hmm. to wonder if that was one of those desk books that yeah. you had to give because he wanted out of that Putnam deal. Is that one of your old things you had turned out and didn't think it was good and you gave it to them and they knew it was going to sell and they put it out there? 
And see, and I, I, I love Bag of Bones. I, I, I think. No, I love Bag of Bones, but the Tommy Knockers, poo. Oh yeah, yeah, the Tommy Knock. You know, it's fun. I didn't. For me, you know, so you have to, you have to contextualize who. You know, this is why this the nostalgia. You know, for Gen Xers piece of this season, like I was literally middle school age for the bulk of these books, like in, in early yeah. high school age for the bulk of these books. And I remember the transition for me, the transition where he started not writing about monster monsters. I mean, you're right. He did kind of preview that in the dead zone, but then he had a trend of it in the nineties that started with yep. Gerald's game. Yes. And Gerald's game was the first book where I was like, Oh, He's doing a different thing now. Cause Gerald's game, old Stephen King, the monster would have been that dog about to eat her up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been like Cujo part two, right? Like, and then the Lord's Claiborne was right after that. And then there's like insomnia. I mean, like, and they were back to back. This is the human horror that humans commit to each other. And those, and they were all like focused on a very specific type of human horror to each other thing, you know, like racism with bag of bones, you know, ageism with insomnia. Um, oh God, what was the, you know, regulators to, you know, kind of how we treated Asian immigrants. Um, I mean, it's a, there was, you know, and that for me was like, okay, now he's doing his serious social issues things with the novel. And then, like, I don't know, like, I don't know what he was trying to do with the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Because after, (laughs) I was, I was on that ride. I was on the '90s ride with him, and you know, and I was, I was ready to let him grow and adapt and not be, you know, evil like the crazy man we all thought. Like, you wouldn't want to be in a long in the room with Stephen King in the '80s. Uh, But yeah, you know, by the 2000s, it was like, well, you know, he loved baseball. And he's a Boston Red Sox fan. And, you know, I got it because um, I actually like, I, I can't say it's a great book, but I enjoyed it. Because to be a girl who loves sports and mm. collect the stats and all those things with my dad, which is a very hard thing for a young girl to be, uh, that she's lost and she's in this space and she falls back on sports. Um that was one of the things I really liked about Stephen King is that he got girls like me. He got mm. tomboys, he got misfit girls that didn't fit in with the, the crowd, the mean girls or the, you know, uh, might be more friends with the boys, which set them apart from the girls. Cause the girls can't figure out how you can be friends with boys. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always loved about it. It's one of the greatest errors and he's admitted it of fixing it with it that what Bev's issue is and how he resolves it is a problem. Um, I wish we could go back and edit that whole section. Uh, But up until then, Bev is an amazing character. Um, You know, and he knows it, that that was a disaster. Um, But, you know, know we got to unpack the disaster. Okay. So for those who don't know, (laughs) yes, we have to unpack because they, because they short shifted also in the films and in the miniseries. I mean, because you know, how you'd have a train run on a girl, um, (laughs) you know, on a 14 year old girl in the film and American audiences of the, you know, but they're all children, right? Like this is an adult, you know, raping a child. This is a girl who's given consent to have sex with other teenage boys. And the idea of it, and the idea of it, I 
did not get as a kid, I was deeply confused. I was 11, 10 and 11 reading this. So I was deeply confused as how this got them out of it. As an adult, I now get his thinking that the, you know, it could only get you if you were a pure child and the act of sex saved you somehow <laughs> from well you know, i don't it, even it, think it, that's what he was thinking I, I i think for me the the movie the most current it film did a better job with it that right. you know like a couple of them had a crush on her they may have all had a crush on her and mm-hmm. they admired her but they knew she was in danger and right. so when they pull her out of the sky and put their arms around her, it's more because she is part of their crew. And, you know, and the one guy who loves her the most, you know, okay, his kiss, I kind of can go with that. Um, but it, I think it was more that, you know, it's just a disaster in the book that they're having sex. Because number one, I'm with you. I wanted to recommend this book to kids who were my age when I started reading it. And then I hesitate because of that, because I was confused too. I was a late bloomer. I was like, what is this? And, you know, it it just was too much. And I think he didn't have an idea to give her a power. He didn't have a way to empower her. That's, that's, I think what, what bothers me about it. Um, the, I'm sorry, the age, I mean, he's, L. Michael is absolutely right. She does give consent. They are all, you know, rough. They're all, they are all children. They all are roughly the same age. So, but it's, I don't know. It, even the conception of it is problematic to me, Yes, but it's also the fact that regardless of her giving consent, it doesn't feel like she has agency and that, you know, and it, it feels to me, it feels disempowering. Um, it, it empowers the boys and disempowers her. Yes. And so, and okay. I know when I, I know when it was written, (laughs) you know, I, I understand we don't even, the language that we're using to talk about this, scene now is not language that would have been used at the time. Right. So I'm well aware of that. And that I'm probably looking, some of this is probably colored by me looking at this through a later lens, as opposed to at the time when I was reading it and it was more just like, ew, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of, you know, adolescent, you know, discomfort with sexuality that probably colored my viewing of it then. Uh, and now, you know, obviously as a much older person, I'm looking at it in a different way. But that to me ultimately is kind of where, <laughs> I think that Stephen King normally writes women and girls very, very well, as you said yourself. Um, and everything that you were saying about him understanding and getting a girl who's into sports and who maybe doesn't fit into those kind of gender norms um, and is still, you know, figuring things out for herself. He's, he's very capable of tapping into that in a really, in a really beautiful way. And up until that part of it, Bev is just a really interesting and thoughtful and very human and fully fleshed person. And something about that being kind of the resolution to the story, I I kind of get where he was coming from, but it falls flat for me. And to me, it takes away some of those dimensions of her personality. 
and and if I could give my real belief on that is I think King hedged his bets because reading enough of his work and reading enough of the stuff where he reflects on it, I think he came up with this, which was a very bad solution because it's not a real Stephen King solution. The reality was of it, and I had read enough horror by then, is that um, at some point, he, what it should have been is the father did assault her. And I just don't think he wanted to write that. And, or that she really gets hurt fighting back because it would have made more sense of what the adult Bev becomes where she kind of becomes the punching bag for some men, but on the day she gets called back, she fights back. And right. it would have made more sense if she had fought back with the father and kind of maybe came out on the losing end of it and they went mm. to the hospital and stood around her or they confronted the father on her behalf would have made more sense. But I think he didn't want to write that because yeah. he already had a reputation for bumping off kids. And I just, <laughs> that would have been, you know, but he knows it's a disaster. And I, I, I accept his acknowledgement of that. When I do reread reread it, I skip that part. Mm. I don't read that part. Because it's such a turnoff. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I haven't read it again since. So I actually looked up the years 1980, 1986. And so I was 11. So I was actually 11 when I read it. And I don't remember. My memory of it is that her father was beating the shit out of her and, and sexualizing her. Is that not in the book? Uh, I'm thinking that he was going to make that step. It's quite clear that the father is gearing up to do something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he, okay. He gets out of there before he physically does something, but he is clearly getting Inappropriate there. Inappropriate with his daughter, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was I was wondering, I was like, wait a second, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was, because yeah, that was the horror of Bev's her. whole life. But I view, well, you know, number one, it's kind of like, the sex thing becomes a betrayal to young women reading the book, young girls reading the book. That's how I felt. Cause mm. I was like, okay, the guy with asthma gets to have battery acid and, you know, and she gets to lay on her back and have sex with the, mm -hmm. the, I, you know, I thought, Oh, that I'm not going to run out. That's not empowering. Didn't feel empowering to me reading right. it as a, as a, as a preteen, particularly who was trying to figure out sex. Um, that's, yeah, that was, it was devastating. It changed the book for me. And, you know, so I, I just think it depends on who you are, you know, for young boys, you know, you might have a different feeling, but I think for young girls, it's, it does. It felt like a betrayal at the book. I mm -hmm. loved it, but I just, it unsettled me with it. Cause I was just like, and I just stopped thinking about Bev. Actually, my truth was, I said, oh, well, maybe that's what little white girls do because little black girls wouldn't have Ooh. been like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that does come up. Um, I, as somebody who worked with kids around media images, the, that, you know, there is a narrative around white girls that teenagers develop from film and, and television because um, they don't even know any white girls in real life and they, they only have access to those ideas. <laughs> through film and television, which does not depict young white girls well. Um, you know, it's funny y'all to say this. I'm glad we're having this, you know, conversation about it um, from a gender perspective. I don't, I just remember being confused. My, I, I was much more upset. I won't even say upset, disappointed that 
the entity turned out to be a spider at the end of the work than I was by what happened. I was just confused by the sex thing. And I was like, I just don't get it. And, And at that age, I was reading so much adult material that I didn't always understand that I was just like, oh, this is something I'll maybe get on when I'm older. <laughs> and just kept, right, and right. kept on reading. I mean, I really just, just kept on, I was like, I don't get this part. You know, like a lot of adult books, I don't understand how this worked, but okay. And I just kept on reading. For me, I felt like Steve King had wrote himself in a corner mm-hmm. and did, he had created this, this entity that was so amazing, so multifaceted, so terrifying and that he couldn't figure out a way to give a final expression to it. And I was like, a giant spider. I mean, maybe 11 been like, girl, what? <laughs> like... Yeah. I, I thought it was sad too. I think, once again, I'm going to say the technology kind of, because it falls flat in the TV miniseries too. Yes. Um, but in the movies, man, you know, yeah, they it worked in the movies. Yes. And I actually think too, even if he wanted to make it a monstrous, gigantic clown, once again, I think he was worried that, you know, people would laugh at that. And um, I would say, too, I'm loving that we're having this discussion about being a youngster reading this stuff and then going back and looking at it as an adult is um, I was sitting there that I can remember reading that and sitting there thinking that last hundred or so pages, you know, what what is he going to make this thing look like? Like, I knew he was in trouble. <laughs> There was no way that this thing, there was no way, and particularly when it was so scary, the light, and mm-hmm. the stuff that scares me in the TV miniseries is when uh, Henry and those guys get pulled into those tunnels, those oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's the light, and I'm like, oh, you know, I couldn't imagine, and I feel for him, because, you know, I'm not mad, because in some ways, I'm like, well, dude, I couldn't think of what it would be either. <laughs> right. You know, you I mean, yeah. and yes. other than, um, you know, I, I get it. I think I respect it more now that the movies make clear and he makes clear that it's the manifestation of children mm-hmm. of what would, and a monstrous, huge spider. If you look at the 1950s, remember, he talks about that. It's the connections. You have to connect King to his work, who he is. And he talks about them going to see those movies in the 1950s in the theaters and it, the big ass spider and everybody's losing their mind and the tingler, you know, and it's buzzing your ass and those kind of things. So it's, I think that's what he was throwing back to. I love his Easter eggs of throwing back to a, a lost history. And so I think that's what it is. But L. Michael's absolutely right. It just, it's forever flat because it was impossible. I mean, and also he he'd written so gorgeously up to that point that yeah. it was he had written himself, his, you know, he was his own worst enemy <laughs> because I mean, and for me, so this actually answers we've, we've kind of jumped into a couple of other questions already and just the conversation's natural flow, which was kind of what book spoke most to you. And for me, it was it. And it spoke to me because at the time I was being bullied and mm-hmm. and it was and. And I did not feel like adults understood how dangerous other children were. I did not feel like other adults understood how tenuous it was that my life 
could be in danger or my body be harmed that between other adults in the hood, in the 80s, Reagan 80s, and poor Chicago South Side, and then these children, these feral children, <laughs> brag upon me. You know, like, I, I felt like I could be killed at any moment by accident. And this is a real fear for me as a kid. I could be killed any moment by accident from kids who didn't mean it at the time going too far. And right. it spoke directly to that fear. These were kids who were menaced, <laughs> not just by these monsters in, in the supernatural, but menaced by other children. Yes. And adults were constantly looking the other way and not keeping their eyes on these kids. And that and I, spoke to me very deeply as an 11 year old. And I, I really love that. But also the fact that Stephen King got being queer endangered yeah. you. And, yes. you know, and that um, there wasn't any mercy. And so if the human society didn't have mercy for queer people, why would this alien being? And, you know, and it's, it's, it's really vicious. And so, you know, he's turning that lens and that, that was early for him to be doing that in the, in the eighties. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I respect that. And he allowed people to be. And, and don't think that it didn't resonate with me that that character was named Adrian. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Cause it did. <laughs> you yeah. know? And obviously Mike's his, I mean, we're, we're going to talk more obviously about his, how King handles black characters, <clears throat> but you know, the fact that Mike is, you know, all the kids, the, the kids in the Losers Club have various reasons why they're being targeted, why they're vulnerable. Mike's is just his existence. Yes. It's not because he's, you know, from the wrong side of the tracks or, you know, because he's a misfit or because he has a, he has a a stutter like Bill um, or, (laughs) you know, he's, the new kid in town, the new, you know, the new kid, he's overweight. Um, you know, like all of those are sort of, um, many of them are changeable things. Um, and perhaps transitory or temporary things. It doesn't feel that way to a child. What you're experiencing and the body that you're living in when you're a child, that feels like it's going to be forever. But to a reader, um, who they may, especially if they're older than the characters, they might have the ability to see that this is a transitory thing. Mike's experience is not transitory. Right. <laughs> He's always going to be the black kid in dairy. And so <laughs> I, I did appreciate the fact that to the, to the extent that he was able to, I think that King did convey some of that. And, and Not, well, I think King made him the anchor and that because he was the one that probably experienced the worst kind of bullying beyond the kid that got carved. Absolutely. Um, that of course he would remember. Of course he would never forget. Right. Because he's not never allowed to forget. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I that's yeah, my piece. If I can see them filmmakers of the first movie. When they took away Mike being the historian, I wanted that's I got oh, 
Yeah. I got beef. With yeah. That. I was, I was pretty incensed about, yes. about that. That made me very mad. And they completely very messed mad. him over in the second film. That, mm-hmm. that sequel. I just like, you completely turned him, you hallorined him. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought that was unforgivable. So yeah. I'm actually going to turn to Alt on this one, because this is one uh-huh. of her questions. King's use of child protagonists and perspectives to process hard narratives. So I think we're in the midst of that with it. Yeah. Um, are there other works that you wanted to uh, unpack with that? And what book most spoke to you? Because it was what spoke to me. What What was it for you? Um, I think in terms of... Um, it's funny because it actually was probably Salem's Lot um, mm. in terms of a fiction book. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later, I think, about the, maybe about the book that um, was the, uh, is our favorite book or was most resonant. And funnily enough, that's not actually a fiction book, but I'll, <laughs> I'll get to that later. But um, <clears throat> Salem's Lot um, the, uh, the child character in that, that actually is kind of what, what made me start thinking about the whole, the whole thing with child protagonists for King, because obviously, you know, children are not the protagonists of all of his books, but there are a lot of them. And, um, I think he has talked about, uh, how impactful his own childhood was, um, and how the ways in which he, he, used film and comic books uh, in particular to kind of process uh, the world around him and, um, you know, the history that he saw unfolding and how he tried to kind of understand his world. And I think he's very strong in um, depicting characters who are children who are able to do that um, and do it for, as, as audience proxies. Um, and obviously, um, that happens with the Losers Club uh, in it. But also, you have um, <clears throat> the characters in uh, the body, uh, which obviously becomes uh, the film Stand by Me. And you know, you have things like Firestarter, but even Carrie. Um, Carrie's a teenager, but she's still a child. Um, Arnie and Christine is still a child. Um, You know, The Shining. I mean, this is very much about a father's journey to maybe kind of acceptance of who he truly is instead of who he's trying to be or who he thinks the world expects him to be and his son very vulnerable uh imbued with this power and still seeking that love and seeking that acceptance from a father and trying to understand this place that he finds himself in and trying to understand these people el michael you made me think of it when you were talking about adults not understanding how dangerous the world can be for kids and and how dangerous other kids can be to kids and in The Shining, it's not other kids. It's your own family. Mm-hmm. It's your own parent 
Mm. It's the person you're supposed to be able to um, trust the most, you know, look to, trust the most, and look for look mm-hmm. to for comfort. And this is the person who you don't understand, and who ultimately ends up terrorizing you. And so, I think that King explores a lot of those kinds of things through his child characters, and <clears throat> in Salem's Lot. Um, there's a lot of young characters, there's, I mean, this, one of the central characters obviously is a child, but, um, there's other characters who are, are children like, um, the young boy, Ralphie, who, um, he, he disappears, uh, his brother, um, Danny, who, uh, becomes the first, uh, Salem Slot obviously deals with a with a town in which the population is uh, being vampirized, and um, Danny is, uh, I believe, his character is like twelve years old, something like that, and he becomes the first vampire who's turned. And so here you have uh, a number of you have a, a a child trying to process what's happening to these people. Uh, in this town and you have children being some of the most vulnerable characters um and uh that sense of trying to understand what's happening to you what's happening to the place around you and figuring out are there adults that I can trust because I can't do this on my own I can't figure this out by myself but the the grownups are also dangerous and who can, who can I trust? And I think that issue of how much do adults know, how much danger do adults pose to children and how do children manage that? Those are horrific things. That's more horrific in many ways than any kind of monster. It's not, the vampires are scary enough, but the finding, figuring out who, you can you who you can trust and who is truly an ally that is scarier i think than the actual vampires themselves yeah so that's, it's that's one of the things that yeah it is one of the things that came I, I, when i was trying to come up with the intro for this this question um that i did not know and looked when i was looking up stuff about king salem's lot the long walk and Firestarter, which came out in 78, 79, and 81, respectively, were named by the American Library Association as best books for young adults. I, I, yes. (laughs) And so it's interesting that, you know, we all were young in our reading of King, but I would not have characterized King ever as a YA novelist. (laughs) But... I think because, you know, and I don't know if they even knew where to put him back then, but it's not like there was not Louise Duncan at the same time or Christopher Pike. You know, there were other YA writers writing directly to kids in a horror genre. Um, But yeah, somehow (laughs) King King is named by the ALA as best books for young adults for for books that are very, very grown, very adult. Yes. I'm not putting um, fire started with "Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret." Right. Like, <laughs> or even, or even Lois. So, um, L. Michael just mentioned Lois Duncan, who was one of my favorite writers growing up. 
<clears throat> excuse me, but she wrote, I know what you did last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, um, a, my favorite book of her is a book called summer of fear. Um, yep. Which which Wes Wes Craven um, actually directed? Hey, hey, yeah. I think that's scarier in some ways than The Exorcist. That adaptation, um, and so, but but her books were scary, suspenseful, um, you know, disturbing, but nothing like Stephen King. It was age appropriate. Yeah, he was. Yes, this was age appropriate horror. He Stephen King was not ever (laughs) never age appropriate. And it wasn't one year, right? Like he he won three years, (laughs) three out of three out of four years. My God, the long walk is devastating. Yes, yes. Yes. This is Um, people who this is people who called it YA because it had young protagonists. But they evidently did not actually read the books. <laughs> but I, I don't want. Speaks, go ahead, uh, Doctor. I, I don't want Adrian's beautiful point to get lost. I think one of King's superpowers is understanding that adult trauma can oftentimes be tied to childhood, mm-hmm. and that um, childhood is where you still believe in the rules. And you believe in good and you believe in evil, where adults are much more jaded about it. And some of his most powerful things that resonated for me, because I was a child that found solace in getting away from bullying with the library and the movie theater, like at pupil scared the hell out of me because I was a kid that was allowed to get into any books I wanted to get into. And then when I got a bit obsessive with it, it was frightening because there was no one to talk to about it to kind of relieve the pressure. You know, I love the Titanic, I, the Manson murders, even even looking into the Holocaust. You know, I was like, oh God, this is like more than my little young brain can process. And it becomes, you know, you start looking at adults very different. And it is, it is this concept because needful things to me you got to remember, it's like a nine or 11 year old boy that starts that chain of disaster and needful things mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. a baseball card. And that, and then when he realizes, he's the first one that realizes the shopkeeper is the devil. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he realized he's been lied to, he's been tricked, and he has set off something. And they couldn't do it in the movies. That little boy commits suicide. And it's I, I like Needful Things the movie, but it changes it that it, that was so dark that it's that understanding as children that I was really betrayed and I don't know how to fix this other than erasing myself. So it mm-hmm. it he has a very powerful way of dealing with bullying, a very powerful way of dealing with childhood trauma and how it manifests you as an adult. You know, um you know, Dr. Sleep, I highly recommend reading that if you haven't got a chance with it, because it does really capture that childhood trauma of that young man from The Shining, that kid from The Shining. I think it just does a excellent job of showing how he you embrace trauma as an adult and uh, and get forward. And, you know, Stand By Me made me cry. And that last line that they use in the movie and in the book that the, you know, the summer I was 12 years old I, I never had friends like that and yeah. we can all point to that where you have this group of friends that for a moment it was perfect to you and 
it would never be that way again um, because something changes it. So yes, he gets he gets the power of children. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that made me think about that was that um, one of my, I mean, we are kind of jumping around just a little bit, but um, <clears throat> one of my um, actual favorite film adaptations of Stephen King, it's not one that's uh, critically acclaimed by any stretch, like Stand, Stand By Me, but I don't care. I love Silver Bullet. I, I love, love so Silver Bullet. Oh Go my on. gosh. <laughs> I love it so. And, um, you know, obviously it's an adaptation of King's, it, it's actually a novella, um, Cycle of the Werewolf. And one of the things that I love about it so much is because it gets that, um, that very tender spot uh, between siblings um, and how you can love your sibling, but you also, they get on your last nerve. And, you know, you th- sometimes you might even think to yourself, you know, God, I wish they, I, 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 you know, I wish he would just drop dead. I mean, you know, and because, because you're 12, you know, or whatever it is, and you don't have any sense of finality in life. And then suddenly, they you do. know, people start dying. <laughs> around, well, the people start dying all around you right? and you need that anchor and something that the film does beautifully more so than the novella is to show those family relationships to show that relationship between Marty and his sister and how it, they, they both have very understandable um, gripes with each other, you know, but there's deep love underneath that. And this, this terrifying situation that brings them together um, and gets them to understand each other better and trust each other more than they've ever had to, um, it, you know, it's a test that kind of pulls those layers away. And, and then, you know, kind of same thing with, um, Marty and, and Uncle Red, you know, the character is, is, the, is different in the, in the novella. I don't think he's, he's not even called Red. He has a, he has a different name that I can't recall. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody wants to have that favorite uncle, but, or, or, you know, favorite auntie or whatever it may be, but that uncle may also be very flawed and may be seen very differently by the adults in that person's life. Um, he know King knew how to sort of, um, write the character of Marty right from that child level, um, and, and describe how a child would see a person like that and how a child would see their parents and, um, what feels like overprotection, um, and how a child would see their, their annoying, you know, older sibling. And then how those people, those feelings towards those people change when something terrifying happens, when there is a menace out there and, you know, you are particularly powerless because you're not, you're a child, um, you're wheelchair bound and no one believes you. No one, uh, you, you know something they don't know. And because they're adults and because there's that different power dynamic, they don't believe you and they think they know better than you. Kids sometimes are more perceptive about the world than they're ever, ever given credit for. And King captures that in a way I think better than almost anybody. Yeah. He definitely has a respect for children. He also has respect for children's ability to be powerful, yes. you know, because when, when we get the gifts as in Carrie 
or The Shining or <laughs> Firestarter. Firestarter, yeah. Your children are definitely not afraid to be like, you know what? I'm about sick of y'all adults. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm, about sick of y'all. I'm about sick of y'all and I've had it and I'm about to yes. let y'all know that I'm not some weak little thing that you get to do and as a child who felt very unempowered or disempowered it, it there was something thrilling yes. about watching these children um, take on these bad adults you know who were you know and in some cases not always bad adults sometimes innocent bystanders who just got caught in the crossfire <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, yeah, who I think we're doing so. their best and just didn't understand. Right, right, just didn't understand. I'm gonna ask one more question, and I'm gonna say that we're gonna end up doing this podcast as a part one and a part two. Yeah, because Beautiful. we still have plenty more to go that yes. we wanted to cover, and, and we're I'm almost, loving this. So <laughs> we're already at an hour and thirty. Um, or almost at an hour 30 at, at, at this point. So uh, audience, you're going to get, uh, we might relabel this one, uh, Stephen King and the children, because I think we focused a lot more on that this episode. <laughs> yeah. And then next episode, we'll Stephen King and the Blacks. Um, for you, Doc Tracy, I don't know if we, I know Night Shift was your entree into the world of King. Is that the book that also spoke to you or was there another book that spoke to you even more so? I'm gonna say because I read it and the stand back to back. Oh wow, you uh, were glutton. <laughs> yeah, big, big, book, big books. Didn't, big books didn't scare me because see, the big book meant I could drag the big book with me because I read everywhere and I tend mm. to burn books really quickly. You know, it's like people messing with Judy Bloom. I'm looking around like you know I could read Judy Bloom because I wasn't in the mix. I wasn't doing the Gossip Girl thing. There was stuff mm -hmm. I played sports. I was a tomboy. I I didn't fit with any of that, but I wasn't a a person they often targeted because I was quiet. And you mm -hmm. know, and then and I didn't play that game. If you got in my grill, I was fighting. And I, you know, and I didn't care about going to the principal's office. So you know, my thing was I would go sit somewhere and read. So it was nothing for me to burn through those kids appropriate books. So when Stephen King came along, I felt like I was being treated like the adult reader I was. Mm. So, you know, but, um, you know, those, the the it and stand, some of the things that, you know, I was like, God, this guy's mind. I, I do, I do think, yes, right. The idea of being in a room with him would have scared me at the time. Uh, you know, but it's just the little things about life that he captured, like the stand, I can't stand the mama character. The, I know we're not going to get into the black stuff till later, but I, I can't stand that. Uh, but it was the way that he captured fear for me. The shining, the the uh, hedge animals. Oh, God. Nightmares. Um, the guy being trapped in prison in the stand, and he's calling out for help, and then he realizes, do I really want whoever's going to answer me to answer me? And, mm. uh, and then it just... Um, Mm. I used to be the kid that loved to see the little paper boat go down the gutter. I never did that again after it. <laughs> it never, Stephen King had things that made me, I would never do it again after that. You know, right. I was just kind of like, yeah, because I was a kid. I didn't mind exploring. You know, I, I, I'm not going down under no bridge or underpass. Uh, I can tell you a funny story to Stephen King. When Nightmare on Elm Street came out, I could not, I was, a, I think, a freshman in college. 
I could not get any of my friends to go because no, there was no publicity. No one knew this was going to become a phenomenon. So I went by myself and I'm in this small college town and the bus stopped running, which I didn't know at eight o'clock. So I had to walk back in the dark and Mm. there comes this railway trestle that it's pitch black and it had pigeons and you could hear the pigeons and it stank. And all I could think was Pennywise is going to be waiting on me when I have. (laughs) (laughs) And I was 18 years old. And I remember I said, I'm just going to close my eyes and I'm just going to run as fast as I can through this 50, 75 feet. And I, I, I never forgot that. I said, I cannot believe, I do not like clowns. And I, I literally will leave a space. I don't want to see you. I don't want to, you know, don't come up to me. I, I do not like clowns. And it is, a, I blame it on Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, so, I didn't yes. have anything around clowns when, um, I didn't even know people were afraid of clowns like that until it happened. And then people were like much more verbose about their fear of clowns after that. Um, I mean, and, and it's interesting because I grew up in the same state as John Wayne Gacy when he was killing those boys. <laughs> That's what did it, El Michael. And, and I remember being a kid seeing the, you know, they were so Gacy and his clown get up on the news, you know, during the same period as well. So, yeah, I think it's, it's something interesting about that. There's one last question. Um, if I can say and, one more point on that, because I want to yeah, say yeah, this yeah. made clear about growing up in a certain era. Now, I'm a bit older than you. But Mm -hmm. you got to remember when I was growing up in California and reading Stephen King, this is when we had the Hillside Strangler. Mm. Ted Bundy was running around. Mm -hmm. And this was the golden age of serial killers, this 70 to the late 80s. And in California, you know, in the Manson thing, you know, Stephen King woke me up to pay attention to detail. And I remember reading Helter Skelter and how they almost missed getting Manson that night, and how they missed him, because he was so little, he fit himself under the sink cabinet. And the only reason I caught him is the police, a policeman did one more look through the house, and he saw this strands of hair on the door. Wow. And he opened the cabinet, and Manson was in there. Otherwise, they would have missed him, and he would have got away. And so reading and, I, you know, true crime, reading about Gacy and that Gacy scares the hell out of me. And so it wasn't a far leap for me with it. And I thought, you know, wow, you know, Stephen King, this, you just wrong for this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and for me as a kid, clowns were just done. They were just done because I just remember <laughs> that sinisterness of it they would never be something cute to me i'd never wanted to go to the circus barnum and bailey none of that you could forget it <laughs> you know if they had kid, gone at a kid's party i'm going inside so it just yeah it it just is mm, yeah <laughs> i mean and i think context is everything I, I i don't know that younger audiences can appreciate that you know king was writing these books at a time in which reaganomics was happening Mm-hmm. Uh, we were having a, a comic book superhero renaissance of so people with special powers was in vogue and <laughs> much like it is now um a lot of kind of you know the 80s cons- conformity and 80s conservatism 
as this scene, this panacea, which was, was a lot like the 50s, which he would go back again and again to the 50s, it's kind of a very similar era where all of this darkness is underneath this veneer of conformity and, and niceness and sweet, you know, you know, what's happening underneath all of that. Um, and I don't yeah, know. I mean, yeah. I mean, and even the, I don't know that horror novels will ever experience like it, there was such a confluence of events. You also had like Dean Kuntz and other people writing in this period that were highly successful as well. I actually didn't realize how many books Dean Kuntz had sold. He was actually almost also king <laughs> like, um, in the same period. But I think, yeah, I don't know that we'll ever see the horror novel be as beloved as it was during that period again. I mean, like, and, and, and so much of it was our responding to the what was actually happening in real life. And it, but, getting you know, King novels like a roller coaster of control. Like we could we could control this book. <laughs> right? We could, could get off the roller coaster. But, but El Michael, were you a latchkey kid? Because see, I was a latchkey kid. I was. Kid. I was. I was a latchkey kid. So kid. that was, and then, you know, it's hard because it's hard for me with my students to put it back into context. You know, we didn't have all these cable channels. No. And my mom was like, you know, um, you better do your homework and I don't want you on that TV till I get home. So, you know, reading was the escape and i don't think you know when you tell them like we had z channel and on tv and, they, yes. and they're like two two things two things and you know and then that was regulated and so i and also we still did things that were considered safe that nobody would do now like trick-or-treating by yourself mm -hmm. um walking home by yourself um, going to the, the liquor store to get a piece of candy by yourself. I, would you let kids do that now? Would you let them go to the park to play basketball or baseball like we used to by ourselves? There's things that stand by me that, yes, are set in the 50s, but we were still doing in the 70s and 80s. Yes. Y'all don't get to do now. I mean, and also that they didn't, there were literally hours a day where your parents didn't know where you were. <laughs> like and and did not like had no idea where you were and you, as long as you were home before the street lights came on right but that's the or, whole thing they didn't want yeah. you underfoot until then so you stay right. I, I know my mom used to tell me you go, go do something and stay out <laughs> you know outside. go outside and, you know, and yeah, come back when it starts to get, you know, when it starts to get. Up. I mean, and I'm also a city kid. So I, by middle school, I was fully versed on public transportation and knew how to get all over the south side of Chicago and most of downtown on public transportation. You were a superhero for 10, that. 11, loyal I mean, and that was, but that was also just, a. I mean, all my friends, did too. our parents worked. <laughs> our parents worked and they couldn't afford child care. You know, yeah. and so like there were, you know, I had childcare up until about ten. You know, like to your point, it was like, at a certain age. My mom was just like, "Here's the key," and that was around fifth and sixth grade. And so, but before that, I, you know, I went to a babysitter's house. But after that, there was no more. My mama couldn't afford the babysitter, and no and cell so, phones, and and no beepers. And there wasn't, and, phones. There wasn't any beepers, you know. Yeah. And and so and yeah, the times, and but you know, they only worked at a certain range. And your mom so didn't know nothing about that. Yeah, so I think environmentally, though, there's also kind of like, there's a lot. I, I mean, 
I can't imagine what it was like to be a parent in that era too, because you're, I mean, one, this was, everybody was doing this. This was not unique. Uh, maybe in a, maybe in some white suburb somewhere it was unique, but for black folks, <laughs> this was, this, this was this not unique. And so, you know, for hours at a time, they would have to just kind of hope and pray that you were covered by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> like, right. And, and that was really it. I, I mean, you know, I love the children because I had free reign to go to the library. Yeah, and I did too. come home with the most inappropriate stuff all the time. And as long as I was sitting quiet reading, you know, it would only be later they may have found out what I was reading, and that mm-hmm. librarians were excited to see you and would have stacks of stuff going. I knew you were coming back here. I got this. You know, you're not supposed to be reading shoot 'em up westerns or, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be reading uh, Mickey Spillane. You know, at eight or nine, you know, but if you could read it and handle it, you know, I laugh now when I look at because I have a good collection of my childhood books and I go, ooh. No, I, I, I started rebuying those things as well um, in the last five years. Actually, the, the pandemic sparked a lot of nostalgia desires for me. And, and, and to your point, though, I mean, my mother... God bless her. We were evangelical Christian. We were very conservative. Like people didn't curse around me until I, I didn't know any curse words until I was like in fifth or sixth grade. <laughs> so, so like, you know, like it was, but, but books was the one place I was given complete free reign. Yeah. As long as I could read it, I was allowed to read it. Yeah, and what so, was that about? and I don't know. I don't know. I think it was one, I think there was a, a we are also post-civil rights babies, right? Like, and so there was a strong impetus that we needed to be very well read. We needed to be yeah, way, yes. very well versed. We need to be very well educated. And any and so many parents were struggling getting their kids to read anything, right? You know, a comic book. You know, my, my mother would buy me Archie double digest by the handfuls. Like, I mean, <laughs> we you know, there was a lot of reading in my my first. I, mean, I think my mother had me do my first oral book report uh, the first summer break we had from school. I was six and yeah, I was at oh, the wow. Little Lane Prince and, and Huckleberry Finn. And I was six. I was reading Little Lane Prince and Huckleberry Finn at six. And so, you know, I don't. So there's not a part in my life in which I don't, you know, and this is fascinating to me because now I'm hearing all of this stuff about there were book bannings in the 80s. And I'm like, literally, I was reading Jackie Collins and Stephen King. <laughs> so, you guys like, yes, you know, Michael, I have three of my And I hope one day you do a podcast on this, is the passing around of highly sexualized books. Anise Nin was being, Little Birds was being passed around forever by I mean, Judy. Andrew. Oh, yes. Oh, you yes. know, any and flowers in the at um uh scruples, Judith all of Judith Cranz, all of Barbara Taylor Bradford, Lace. all of Jimmy Sheldon, all of Shirley Collins, Harold Robbins, Harold Robbins. Oh no, I got you one better than all of them. Andrew M. Greeley, the little cat. Oh, stop it! You know the past. I got all of his books. And all of those modest rippers, like yes. you know, slavery that had the, the the slave master in love with his mulatto slave. I mean, and everybody yeah. had some auntie, godmother, somebody who had Harlequin romance novels. Yes, by, yes, by boxfuls, and I, you know, 
and you can get through those in an hour and a half. <laughs> like, I mean, like literally. Right you know, we have the bus ride anyway. home. And we have one friend that could collect the 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 books that might get you in trouble. She put them in her backpack, and she said, "But you know, my dad doesn't check." And then she deal them out again when we were riding home on the bus the next day. And you could read as long as you got to your stop. <laughs> yeah, I also think that that's also a big part of it too. I was on public transportation a lot, and so those are hours and hours spent reading. Because I mean, <laughs> like it was wrote road transportation situations for me. Um, last question, because we are way over our time. Yep. And um, But I do think this one is an interesting one because the next we can switch over to the film and TV adaptation stuff. Uh, what is King best at? Human monsters or horror creatures or both? And what is scariest to you? And let's try to be succinct in our answers here because we got like 15 yes. minutes before we're two hours. So I'll go, uh, and I think that um, I, I don't really think about I don't really think about monsters. Well, okay, put it this way: human monsters. That's my <laughs> that's my answer. Um, you know, I think that Stephen King probably through some of his own experiences with alcoholism, um, depression, recovering from that horrific accident, um, you know, and just. Uh, obviously things he's absorbed uh, in the world because he's, he's any strong writer is also a sociologist and um, a cultural anthropologist uh, in an amateur way. And I think that he really gets um, those dark nights of the soul that really embed inside you and how deeply flawed human beings can be. Even his worst characters aren't what I would characterize as evil, um, but they can do some incredibly evil things and they can pose great threats and be very, very harmful to people around them, um, particularly to the people who are closest to them. He's dealt a lot in his books with um, child abuse, with domestic violence, um, with uh, substance abuse, all those kinds of in-home sort of domestic terrors that are um, so many of us can relate to and are so frightening to us. And I think that he jumps off from that, from those most intimate dangers. Um, and yes, sometimes he has uh, what more traditional monsters um, or entities in his works, but they're not the most frightening to me. It's the human being. Even take something like Christine, I'll say very quickly, you've got this car that seems to be possessed of a sentience and of a power. But what's the most frightening thing that happens in Christine? It's what happens to Arnie. It's the yes. way Arnie changes. It's, it's the darkness that emerges in him. So I think King really gets that. And that is his great strength, I think, in terms of characterization. Doc Trace? I will follow up on that. And I will say, because I'm a horror film and TV fanatic, monsters entertain me. They don't necessarily scare me. Um, because I'm also a true crime aficionado, people scare me more than monsters. Made-up monsters or supernatural things. I can enjoy those kind of made up supernatural scares as creativity but human beings i can look at you and i can see it um and so i think one of my favorite king books and adaptations is dolores claiborne 
and the abuse that women suffer, you know, it's what I say about black people. You're kind of lucky. The world is lucky that black people have a sense of humor and that mm -hmm. if we really turn that rage into destructive things, you guys would be, the world would be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and instead we laugh about things, we cry about things, we never about certain things. And Dolores Claiborne, I think people, the subtlety of the violence that those, both those women in there end up their lifelong complicated employee worker friendship. Um, there is some evil there. There is some ugly there that they, you know, you know, one of us is going to the boneyard tonight, you know, and I, I mm. love that. And you, you put that person there. And they're they're making a choice. Remember, Dolores is deciding to murder. You know, that's not what everyday people do. You know, she could have packed up and ran away with nothing, but she instead chooses to murder. And it's one of the things I, I like about the Mr. Mercedes is this dude isn't going to stop. Mm -hmm. And you put some really good people in a position to choose some dark stuff. And I think we all do that every day in our lives. And it all depends on, because um, the graphic artist and, and, and great graphic novelist John Jennings says, there's always a price to pay. And that has really resonated with me. And I think with King, it depends on how far you end up going. When he puts you in these situations, such as where Arnie is, that at some point, Arnie is lost. I think midway through that book, Arnie is lost. Arnie will never come back because he has gone too far with the, the dark choice. And I think King doesn't blame you for making the dark choice. I think he expects you to have some sense of how far you're going. And so I, I like that. And so it, it keeps it unpredictable. I don't feel manipulated with him as a writer because it feels like, you know, a certain day I wake up, I might have made some of those choices Arnie made um, to do that. And what I was getting out of it giving me this, this, this life. So it's, it's, it's that. It's, it's that ability of how the line is so thin between good what we call good and evil and that there's levels to what is evil and that even good people can engage in evil and still be good people. So you are, thank you beautifully for setting me up. I love that. <laughs> you, you've set me up for what is my second favorite work of King ever. And that is storm of the century. Ooh, and gosh, it is ex exactly because of what you say storm of the century gut punches me so hard and i think it's in a very similar reason why stephen king's it does like this town these people are so human yeah. dairy and dairy they're human and and, and in this island town um who have to make a dark choice and 
and you're constantly questioning, like, you know, once you realize what the choice is, right? Because there's a lovely buildup to the choice. And for those who have never heard of Storm of the Century, it was uh, Stephen King wrote a screenplay for the first time directly for television that they then put in book form. So you can actually get it in book form uh, on the book as well. Um, but this miniseries is definitely worth your time. I'm going to try to avoid spoilers um, because it's it's so devastating when you actually <laughs> realize what the choice is. Give me what I and, want and I'll go away. <laughs> and what and the choice the town makes. But it's, it's exactly everything you've all said, right? Like that, you know, Terrence says, I'm a human being. Therefore, there's nothing that, that, that can happen in the world that is human that I'm not capable of. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, and King understands that truth. There is nothing human that we think we are not capable of that we are actually capable of if put in the right set of circumstances, if set in the right pressure points against us, we could become Arnie. We can become the town that makes the choice around children. We can become, you know, um, the girl that slaughters everybody at prom, right? Like you, yeah. you turn that knife right. And all of us are capable of monstrous things. I mean, I don't necessarily know that I'm ever capable of hitting somebody's ankle with a hammer like Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody. Annie, Annie, Annie was a bridge too far for me. <laughs> but you know, but King says Annie's possible for you too if you get crazy enough, if you get obsessive enough, if you get lonely enough, um, if you are terrified of loneliness at a level that you will do anything for company, anything. And we think about some of the things we've done for company, for companionship to not be by ourselves. And Annie doesn't feel quite so monstrous. But yeah, I mean, it's the storm of the century though. You know, I had taken a turn for misery for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about with Annie. We are that's uh, misery, both the play and the film and the book. Um, yeah. Misery's been all the things. Um, but yeah, storm of the century for me is looking at all of humanity, you, you get, you know, um, and, 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 you know, we touched really briefly on the queerness of some of the situations that King was pioneering, discussing, you know, he had hate crimes happening in, in a way that was, you know, this is disgusting, this is wrong, this is bad, but it's also happening, right? It happens in It, it happens in Storm of the Century, um, you know, hate crimes the against mist, gay people. The Mist which is another one of my favorites. It was a disastrous as a TV show, but the the novella but the movie and the, is good. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, we, we get into all of that. Yes, the, the movie is the movie's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, yeah, another yeah. gut punch moment where I literally was left with my mouth ajar. You know, and I mean yeah. and that's it's so hard. I mean all three of us are horror fans and you know we can close out with this. All three of us are horror fans. It's so hard to get a visceral reaction from horror, tr true horror fans because we have Absolutely. seen all Everything. the things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have witnessed all the ways that people can be harmed and, and Stephen King still manages to find ways to get you to a moment where 
you are sitting in a seat devastated an hour later. <laughs> like, what the fuck? And could what and could we have done anything different? Could anything have different have been done? Um I, you know, Yeah, go ahead. I mean, even when he's horrific, because his the one film he directed, Maxima Overdrive, is absolutely horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And we'll get into film adaptations on podcast too. But, but uh, I'm, I'm going to say the the image of the worst, the most dangerous Joker truck is amazing in this terrible, terrible movie. Yes. And it's like you know to be something, even when you're horrible, even when you're campy, you still manage to find at least one thing that people are like, yeah, that movie was boo boo. But if I saw this Joker truck <laughs> on the highway, I'm pulling over. That's you know, that's true. That and, that that truck is that that that's the only scary thing in that movie. In that movie, besides how bad some of the dialogue is, is that freaking truck. Right, because <laughs> I, I didn't like in the tall grass either. But I ain't going into tall grass neither. <laughs> no, because you can put something in there. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, we could, we yeah, we can get uh, cornfields, tall grass. I'm not going anywhere oh, where I'm going to lose my sense of direction. Step, yes. White Stop folks seem to love going room. into places where they lose their sense of direction. I, I don't know what that's about. Lakes on little rafts, you know. No. Oh God, no! Oh, I'm doing oh, no. that. Yeah, he just ruins things. Yes, and, you know, but in the most giggly way. Because I'd have found myself giggling in certain scenarios that bring him back, and that's where I'm thankful for Stephen King is that yes. he's given little giggles for things. Like I said, you know, if the feet aren't covered. We're going to have a little giggle because, you know, we're we going to do that. And every time I get a notice from the campus library that I got their books that I've somehow had forever, I say, ooh, I wonder if they're going to send those library police. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's something. Old houses. And, you know, I got to go to the Winchester house and all I could think was Salem's Lot. I was just like, let's get up out of here before somebody come knocking on the glass. So, it's yes, you have given something that is a gift to a horror fan. Yes, you've actually scared us. Yes. And made us think. Forever. Forever. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, oh. We will return with part two of this discussion because we ain't even get to the Black folks of it all. Um, we touched on some things here and there. But we're in our next conversation, we'll discuss the best and worst of Stephen King's TV and film adaptations. I'm obviously going to talk a little bit more about Storm of the Century, so you have a chance to watch it between now and the next podcast, because I may have to go spoilery. And do, because it's so great. It's so awesome. It's so good. So good. And I understand if you've been turned off the Stephen King miniseries on TV, because there's a lot of bad ones, but that was not one of them. And, you know, we'll talk more about what King means to us as Black folks and maybe Black culture in general. This is the Gibson Gazette signing off as we wonder, what are the stories you're telling the world? Better still, what are the stories you're telling yourselves? Y'all want to say goodnight, folks? Good night, everybody. Good night.